Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about Antonio Lopez de Santa Anna, one of Mexico's most notable political and military leaders. And one of the reasons that he was so notable is that he was the president of Mexico 11 times in total. This bloke had a very interesting career. Uh, He's known to history as being completely untrustworthy, uh, having turned his coat more than a few times throughout his career. He had this odd knack, uh, at the beginning at least, of backing the winning team, which I suppose is an easy thing to do when your loyalties are so fluid and you can just sort of switch sides whenever you feel it appropriate. Anyway, um, after eventually supporting the rebels in the Mexican War of Independence, Santa Ana became embroiled in the ferocity of 19th century Mexican partisan politics, which were extremely cutthroat and ruthless. And uh, as he got involved in, in Mexican politics... He proved to be quite a terrible leader as both a politician and ultimately a military officer as well. Uh, But that didn't stop the Mexican people coming back for more and more of this bloke over the years. Uh, To his credit, he was always there to defend Mexico and its interests, but um, never without defending his own interests at the same time. His legacy includes the disastrous Texas Revolution, the disastrous Mexican-American War, uh, and the disastrous... Gadsden Purchase, all of which we'll be getting across today. But look, it's not all bad. He also gave something else to the world. um, And seeing as we are talking about a 19th century Mexican politician and general, you will never guess what it is. But uh, we'll get to that in due course. Before we begin... I want to thank a couple of alert listeners, David Herrera and Matt Owen, both of whom got in touch to suggest to have a look at Santa Ana. Cheers, David. Cheers, Matty. Good on the both of you. Uh, Anyway, a lot to get across today as ever, so let's get to it here. Let's get stuck in to the story of Mexico's 11-time president, uh, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. Going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the 21st of February, 1794, when Antonio de Padua Maria Severino Santa Ana y Perez de Lebron was born. Must have been a bugger fitting that on the birth certificate, but uh, he was born in Jalapa, which is in the modern day state of Veracruz in Mexico, out east from Mexico City. Uh, And he was born into a a respectable Spanish family. Uh, He was uh, an American-born Spaniard, however. He was one of the Criollos, uh, one of the dominant ethnic factions of the Society of New Spain. Uh, Although they weren't, the Criollos weren't as privileged as Spanish-born or Peninsula-born Spaniards. Um, and, and by the way, I say I say New Spain instead of Mexico because Mexico doesn't exist yet. No, uh, this this part of the world is is still under Spanish control, although that will change very soon. Anyway, young Santa Ana he grows up in uh, in a reasonably comfortable and, and prosperous setting. One of seven kids, and due to his family's connections, he was able to join the Royal Spanish Army at the age of just sixteen uh, in 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 eighteen ten. And it's not very long before he starts to see action either, because uh, 1810, that same year, sees the beginning of the Mexican War of Independence. And and Santa Ana gets swept up in this war shortly after joining the army. In September 1810, uh, a priest named Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla, known today in Mexico as the father of the nation, 
he rallied poor, impoverished farmers uh, and other lost and forgotten people against imperial rule in New Spain. Almost 90,000 ordinary civilians marched against Spanish rule and Santa Anna went out to do his duty and fight against them on the side of the crown. Well, to begin with, at least, but we'll come to that. For about a decade, he fought loyally for Spain. He received swift, swift promotions after consistent displays of bravery and skill. But then, in what would become a hallmark of Santa Anna's career, he switched sides. And get used to him doing this because it's going to happen a lot. In 1820, uh, Spanish King Ferdinand VII was taken prisoner in Spain after a domestic mutiny, after an uprising taking place on the peninsula in Spain itself. And the position of the Spanish crown was greatly weakened after this, uh, after the king was, was captured. Many of those fighting for Spain in New Spain actually reconsidered their positions as a result of Ferdinand's uh, capture. And this is where Santa Anna's unswerving pragmatism kicked in. He didn't have much in the way of unswerving loyalty, this bloke, but if there was one thing you could rely on, rely on it was his pragmatism. You bloody set your watch to it, mate. Santa Anna realises that the wind is blowing against the Loyalist forces for whom he's been fighting for so long. And so, in 1821, the next year, he turns his coat. Instead, he joins those who are fighting for independence, his old enemies, as he reckoned that they would be the ones to win the war. And wouldn't you know it, they were. In 1821, another turncoat, Augustin de Itabide, rose up, captured Mexico City, threw out the Spanish, secured Mexican independence, oversaw its secession, and was proclaimed the emperor of the first Mexican empire. Santa Anna was richly rewarded by Itabide for his... Well, I was going to say loyalty, but really, no, he was richly rewarded for his treachery. Um, he was put in command of the city of Veracruz, where he had a very strong regional following due to, you know, being from that region. And it's perhaps for this reason that he actually didn't last very long in Veracruz. In 1822, Itabide removed him from command. Uh, perhaps he feared that Santa Ana was, was too powerful and as a regional warlord was, was going to pose a threat to his rule as emperor. So what did Santa Ana do? he joined another rebellion, this time against Itabide. Ever ambitious, Santa Anna's support to expand his influence further, and so he sent troops into other regions to support the rebels there. And those verbal inverted commas you heard around the word support are there because he very much had his own agenda in doing this. He didn't just want to support the new rebellion, he wanted to co-opt it. Santa Anna sought to position himself as the leader of a movement that already existed. These regions already had strong anti-Itabide factions, but Santa Anna was trying to swoop in and put himself in charge of them. Another classic Santa Anna move, as you'll see, although it didn't really work this time. Santa Anna was largely sidelined during the second this second rebellion, uh, although he did once again, as I say, pick the winning side. Itabide abdicated in 1823, and he was replaced by a president Rebel General Guadalupe Victoria in, in, in 1824. And at this point, after years and years of turmoil and conflict and fighting and war, there was at last just a little bit of peace and quiet as the first four years of the First Mexican Republic passed without too much incident under Guadalupe Victoria. But then, in 1828, it all came a gutsa with the presidential election that was held that year. All the peace and quiet came crashing down as two chief political rivals faced off for the presidency 
another former rebel leader, Vincente Guerrero, and another turncoat, just like Santa Ana, Manuel Gomez Pedraza. And Pedraza was on track to win. Uh, after the uh, after the people went to the ballots, uh, he was actually announced as the president elect before all the ballots had been counted, and a lot of people weren't very happy with this outcome, uh, including our mate Santa Anna, who said, "Nope, not on my watch." Before they'd finished counting the votes, um, he got stuck in with another rebellion, this time against Pedraza. Uh, Santa Ana was a big supporter of Guerrero, and enough of Guerrero's other supporters joined Santa Ana in this rebellion and forced Pedraza to flee before he could be confirmed as president, leaving Guerrero free to take office. Now, before you get too stuck into Santa Ana for messing with the election results, because uh, obviously it doesn't reflect too well on him, uh, I will say that it does seem like Pedraza also hadn't been playing fair either. He may have undertaken a corrupt campaign of military intervention in the election himself in order to win it. I don't know. Honestly, who knows? This period in Mexican history is dominated by extremely unforgiving partisan politics with liberals and conservatives just ripping each other to pieces wherever they could. But the conservative Pedraza, he's out, he flees the country, and so the liberal Guerrero steps in as Mexico's second ever president. And Guerrero seems to have been a pretty good bloke too. Not only an important leader uh, and a loyal one to the rebellion from Go to Woe uh, during the War of Independence, Guerrero also, during his presidency, managed to abolish slavery. During his short tenure, he did actually manage to outlaw slavery in 1829. Um, and look, He's gone down in history as a Mexican hero. He's got a state named after him in modern-day Mexico. Guerrero, obviously, just south of Mexico City. But what about Santa Ana? I mean, once again, he's back the winning horse. Well, I mean, helped it across the line this time as well. Um, he did very well for himself after supporting Guerrero and securing the presidency for him. Um, and funnily enough, after having done this, he he got a reputation as a defender of democracy by, you know, helping to overthrow a president-elect. But... That's how it goes. Um, but perhaps a, mother, a rather more deserved reputation was the one that he earned as a war hero um, when he led the defence against a Spanish invasion force that had, been, uh, that had been sent to recapture Mexico in 1829. Santa Ana marched to meet these invading Spaniards and defeated a much larger army. Uh, the, I mean... Yes, I mean, well done, Santa Ana, first of all, great job. Uh, the fact that most of the Spanish army had yellow fever certainly helped him out there. But look, a win's a win and you take it. And he was hailed as a hero because of this victory, saving the the, the nascent Mexican Republic. And look, Santa Ana was not a modest man, not by any means. And he leant into this success pretty bloody hugely. He had essentially secured Mexico's ongoing independence by beating the Spanish in this in this battle in in uh, by overcoming this Spanish invasion in 1829, and that is a pretty noteworthy thing to have done. But just have a listen to some of the titles he gave himself after this victory. He went around calling himself the Savior of the Fatherland and and even the Napoleon of the West. Mate, calm down. It's one battle, all right. I mean, good job, sure, but come on. Anyway. This achievement, unfortunately for Santa Ana, was very quickly overshadowed. He actually didn't get to bathe in the limelight for too long uh, uh, because Guerrero, the poor bugger, I mean, he had, a, he had a very short presidency, an unfortunately short presidency, because in December 1829, he was, can you guess, yes, overthrown by his vice president, conservative Anastasio Bustamante. Guerrero fled the capital and, st again, 
Can you guess what he did? He started another uh, started another rebellion. What did you expect? Although this one didn't bring him much success. Guerrero, uh, while fighting, was captured and executed in 1831. And this was not a good move by Bustamante and his conservatives because Guerrero was a hero of the War of Independence. He was beloved by so many people, including, of course, Santa Anna. And so in 1832, Santa Anna rallied the opponents of Bustamante and declared another rebellion. And as we've established, Santa Anna has a real knack for picking the winning side, doesn't he? He fought another rebellion, another civil war, and surprise, surprise, he bloody won it, forcing Bustamante into exile in 1833. But now, with Bustamante out of the way, Mexico has no president and there's no one to step into his shoes immediately. So Santa Anna says, listen, the only fair thing to do, we'll call a presidential election, we'll let the people decide. So he calls an election. And wouldn't you know it, he won very comfortably indeed. This bloke is riding high. His career is off and away. Now he's president of Mexico. What a legend. Get around him. Although I do have to say his approach to leadership was um, very interesting indeed. Now, Santa Ana is often said to have been the president 11 times. And that's true but only in a very technical sense, as we're going to talk about here. But first, we have to meet another bloke, uh, Santa Ana's vice president, another liberal, whose name was Valentin Gomez Farias. Now, Farias uh, was president very briefly before Santa Ana for technical reasons, because Santa Ana wasn't in the city to be announced as president in April. So technically, Santa Ana became president for the first time on the 17th of May, 1833. And his time in office lasted less than three weeks because he decided after two and a half weeks to hand the presidency over to his vice president, to Gomez Frias, on the 4th of June. But he must have changed his mind about doing this because he was back in office on the 18th of June for another couple of weeks. But then he goes, oh, no, actually, I hate this. I don't like this presidency business. I don't want to do it. Gives power back to Gomez Frias in early July and instead went and just chilled out at his hacienda, right? But then in October, right, a little while later, he was back, took the presidency off Gomez Frias again, this time for a whole month and a half. But, oh, no, actually, sorry, I forgot. I do hate this. Back to the Hacienda. So if you count up all these individual instances as separate presidencies, which a lot of historians do not do, uh, he's already at three and it's only been half a year. But ultimately, from 1834 onwards, Gomez Frias was left to lead Mexico, which was in shambles after Bustamante's rule, principally is out of money. Gomez Frias had to pick up the pieces and he did so by enacting all sorts of reforms going after, I mean, listen to this, going after the army, sure, smart move, and the Catholic Church in order to raise money. Very, very powerful institutions to go after. But Gomez Frias, he was fearless and he did his best to repair the country's finances by, as I say, attempting to make some money off of the army and the Catholic Church. But this is where it gets really interesting. Because of how radical Gomez Farias's reforms were, Santa Ana, you know, I say he's just chilling at the Hacienda. There was a very deliberate reason that he was taking a bit of a backseat from politics at this point, right? Because he knew about Gomez Farias's reform agenda and Santa Ana wanted to see what would happen. So he sort of just merged into the background while Gomez Frias enacted them to see how they played out, to see how they were received. And if they did well, oh, terrific. 
He could step in and take credit for being at the head of a government enacting successful, widespread and much needed reform. But if they didn't do well, however, oh, well, still terrific because he could step in and remove Gomez Farias as president for his misguided and foolish attempt at widespread and totally needless reform. Santa Ana certainly knew how to play the angles and make sure that he emerged victorious no matter what. And ultimately, Gomez Farias had to resign thanks to his radical reform agenda that just did not take with the public. They were not a fan of him going after, one, the army, and two, the church. So absolute genius-level play here from Santa Ana. He let Gomez Frias take the fall for unpopular policies levelled at powerful organisations and stepped in to remove Gomez Frias from power, dodging all the political heat for himself. But if it had gone well, his position would have been unaffected because he could have, again, stepped in and, and taken credit. So... I said he was long on pragmatism and short on loyalty, and I certainly bloody meant it, mate. After getting rid of Gomez Farias, uh, Santa Ana saw which way the wind was blowing with the public, and in 1834, he, as a liberal leader in name, dissolved the Liberal Reformist Congress and instead formed a new conservative government set on undoing the work of Gomez Frias again because it was so unpopular. Absolute snake in the grass, this bloke. Now he's a conservative president, apparently. He's just, look, he's just putting himself at the head of whatever movement represents popular opinion, and, and, and he's just trying to capitalise on that. But as we move now into 1835, we come to an event that longtime fans of Half-Arse history will, will remember very well. The Texas Revolution, which we covered in episode 76, Bowie Crockett and the Battle of the Alamo get across it. Quick recap, uh, Anglo-American settlers from the United States of America had been moving into Texas, which at this, well, at this point in history was part of Mexico. And these settlers didn't get along too well with the Mexican authorities. They wouldn't pay taxes. They ignored the laws of the land. They didn't speak the language. They were, as I pointed out in episode 76, the very sort of person that many inhabitants of Texas these days, their descendants, live in total fear of. Illegal immigrants. And also the Anglo-Americans coming to Texas wanted to bring their slaves with them. And you'll remember that Guerrero abolished slavery. So that was a you know another proud cause that the Texians ended up fighting for. Excellent. Anyway, look, I also can't speak too highly of the Mexican government at this stage either because Santa Ana's new conservative government, it, it, it's cracking down on the rights of its citizens. It's hoarding centralised power, generally just being awful in the grand tradition of conservative governments everywhere. Um, and while Santa Ana wasn't hugely interested in the daily life of being president, he did love to get stuck in when a fight was brewing, didn't he? So when disgruntled Texians openly revolted against the Mexican government in 1835, declaring their independence, Santa Ana was more than happy to march north and teach them a lesson. So in a great hurry, he put together an army. He took anyone who wanted to come, so his troops weren't particularly disciplined or well-trained. And he also had to borrow huge amounts of money to pay these troops, putting him a long way in debt, but that's okay, deal with that later. All Santa Ana wanted to do was march into Texas and put on a huge show of force. You know, burn a couple of towns, carry out a couple of massacres, just let the Texians know who was boss, simple as anything. But as you might remember from episode 76, Santa Ana's expedition was an absolute catastrophe. Despite victories during the campaign, such as the famous Battle of the Alamo, his ragtag army was poorly fed, poorly supplied, and suffered huge casualties at every turn. Alamo was a victory for the Mexicans, but it was something of a Pyrrhic victory. It cost them thousands of lives, and what's worse, it galvanised Texian resistance. 
And this led, eventually, as we discussed in episode 76, to General Sam Houston crushing Santa Ana at the Battle of San Jacinto in 1836, despite being outnumbered. And after this battle, after their victory, the Texians took Santa Ana prisoner. Santa Ana was forced to sign the Treaties of Velasco on behalf of Mexico, which recognised Texas as an independent republic. And that is what happens when you let illegals in. They take over the country. Perhaps perhaps the reason that many Texans these days are so worried about illegal immigrants is because they saw how successful their illegal immigrant ancestors were and they're worried that the favour might be returned. Needless to say, the Texas Revolution was an absolute disaster for Santa Ana, whose reputation as a war hero was more or less destroyed after his catastrophic loss of Texas. But it won't be the last bit of territory he causes Mexico to lose to the US, as we will come to. But in the meantime, Santa Ana is sent into exile. And that also won't be the last time that happens either. Uh, he's sent into exile after the Texas Revolution, um, although he is able to return to Mexico before too long in 1837. He returned to his hacienda and he kept a very low profile for a while. But then in 1838, an opportunity to redeem himself emerged. This whole period of Mexican history, as I, as I said, is characterised by ongoing political conflict, which became very violent on more than one occasion. And because of the widespread violence and rioting and looting and damage, the Mexican government just kind of ignored anyone who came to them seeking aid or support or reparations for what they had suffered through political violence. In 1832, a French pastry chef named Monsieur Remontel complained to the Mexican government after Mexican soldiers looted his pastry shop. He claimed damages of 60,000 pesos, which was certainly very ambitious because his business would probably have been worth around 1,000 pesos on a good day. And the Mexican government back in 1832, led by old mate Bustamante, as we talked about before, president at the time, they just laughed him out of town. But the riots and the looting continued. Other shops and businesses suffered. And eventually, enough French people had been adversely affected that they got together and complained, not to the Mexican government, but the French government. And so in 1838, French Prime Minister Louis-Mathieu Mole demanded Mexico pay 60,000 pesos in damages. And the Mexicans told him to stick it right up his bum. And so began a conflict given the altogether excellent name of the Pastry War because of the complaint of Monsieur Remontel. France responded in no uncertain terms to Mexico's refusal to pay the, uh, the demanded sum. The French sent a fleet to blockade Mexican ports and bombard Mexican fortresses. And they also landed in Veracruz and seized the city. And this is where Santa Ana comes in. Santa Ana came out of retirement from the Hacienda, gathered troops together and took the fight to the French in Veracruz. The 1838 Battle of Veracruz saw him once again bravely lead his men into the fray, defending his homeland against the accursed invaders. And we all know that Santa Ana tended to back the winning side, didn't he? Well, not this time. The Mexicans had their asses handed to them by the French and more specifically, Santa Ana had his leg handed to him, quite literally. While retreating, Santa Ana was hit in the left leg by cannon fire, which ultimately led to amputation. 
Now, obviously, this is a, this is an awful thing to happen to anyone losing a leg like that. But I'll tell you what. Santa Ana made the most of the situation, didn't he? Not only did the Battle of Veracruz propel him back into the spotlight as a war hero of old, it showed that despite his defeat, Santa Ana had given the battle everything he had to the point that he lost a leg and no one could question that level of sacrifice. Santa Ana made sure everyone knew about the loss. Uh, and the way he did this was by, this is not a joke, this actually happened, if you'll believe it, he gave his amputated leg a burial with full military honours. Yes, he staged a military funeral just for his leg. Talk about a publicity stunt. I mean, it worked as well. That's the thing. It worked. Mexico surrendered to the French. They agreed to pay the 60,000 pesos. After all, they actually they, they never actually did pay, but they agreed to. And uh, the government of Mexico at this stage, which is incidentally led once again by Anastasio Bustamante, you remember him from uh, just a bit earlier, uh, his government and he himself completely disgraced in, in the wake of this defeat. He is falling apart politically. And who was there to step in and take advantage of Bustamante's downfall? Old mate Santa Ana didn't miss his chance. Ultimately, Bustamante was ousted from government and people clamoured for Santa Ana to return to power, which of course he did. On the 10th of October, 1841, Santa Ana became president once again. This is the sixth time for those playing at home. There was a, a brief period in 1839 that he acted as interim president while Bustamante was off fighting rebels. Anyway, this presidency was very different to the last. Now, now Santa Ana is arrested on conservative, and so he governed much more like a dictator than a president. He cracked down on political opponents. He chucked anyone who disagreed with him in prison. He banned newspapers that were aligned against him. He also raised taxes, which caused several states within Mexico to declare themselves independent of the central government. And he, oh, he oh, should mention, he also had a couple of breaks from the presidency during this time. So he's now up to presidency number eight. But this period was a complete disaster. It, I mean, eventually the, the, the tide of ne negative public opinion swamped Santa Ana to the point that he had to not just resign, but also flee. Uh, hilariously, a mob of his opponents actually exhumed his buried leg after he'd been overthrown and dragged it through the streets to mock him. And uh, despite fleeing, Santa Ana couldn't avoid capture. In 1845, he was taken prisoner and he was sent into exile once again and spent the next little while in Cuba. But not that long. It was not a very long exile. In 1846, the Mexican-American War kicked off. Uh, this was a territorial dispute that was the result of the US annexation of Texas. And Mexico suffered early defeats as the war got underway. And it was actually US President James K. Polk who led to the exile of Santa Ana coming to a, an end here. Because Polk wanted the war over nice and quickly. He wanted a, a, a very brief war after having seized the momentum. He wanted it wanted over and done with. And so he reached out to Santa Ana. And Polk made the following proposal to him. He said that he would lift the US blockades of Mexican ports if... Mexico allowed Santa Ana back into the country in order to broker a peace agreement between the US and Mexico. Now, Santa Ana hears this idea. He goes, absolutely, mate, no worries at all. I'll go and I'll talk him into it. It won't be a problem. And Mexico, the Mexican government, who are very keen to, you know, 
have their ports free from blockade, they accepted the terms and allowed Santa Ana back into the country. And so in 1846, Santa Ana made a triumphant return into Mexico, having been made responsible for arranging a peace agreement by Polk. But we know Santa Ana, don't we? We know what he's like. We know how seriously he takes the promises he makes. We know how his word is his bond. So what a surprise it was when, the moment he got to Mexico, instead of brokering peace... He offered his services as a general to his government in fighting the Americans. He had never intended to follow through on Polk's proposal. He just wanted to way back into Mexico and he saw this as an opportunity to get there. And believe it or not, despite his awful presidency so far, despite the fact that he made an absolute dog's breakfast of the, of the Texas Revolution, he still had a ton of supporters. And, I mean, the other thing to mention here is the other presidents of Mexico, both before and after him, had... had had all more or less been just as bad or worse. I mean, look, Santa Ana was inept, untrustworthy, fickle and corrupt, but he was still somehow Mexico's best bet in fighting the US. And so Santa Ana returned to the fore and with his betrayal of Polk, he now had to defend Mexico from the invasion force that Polk had put together. I mentioned Polk wanted a short war, but he did not get it. Santa Anna dug in and fought and fought and fought. And I will tell you this, he did a bloody terrible job of it. Absolutely terrible job. I mean, what were you expecting? This bloke hasn't won a battle since the Alamo. And even then, that wasn't much of a victory. In fact, his only real victory was back in 1829 when he defended Mexico from that, from that Spanish invasion that one time. He ended up as, as president a, a couple of more times in, in 1847, although... One of those presidencies lasted 12 days. Uh, interestingly, his vice president during that time was none other than poor old Valentin Gomez Farias, the bloke who Santa Ana screwed over with reforms all those years ago. But the war continued. The US advanced on Mexico City. And despite Santa Ana's best efforts, um, the Americans were able to seize the Mexican capital, though it was, it was a hard-fought victory for the US, I will say that. And it wasn't a great result for Santa Ana, who had framed himself as Mexico's saviour. Um, and he also, as part of this defeat, suffered a terrible personal embarrassment as well. His prosthetic leg was captured by US forces during the Battle of Cerro Gordo uh, after Santa Ana was forced to flee the battlefield without it. Uh, and this humiliation arising from the Mexican-American War was only made worse when the prosthetic leg was taken back to the US and put on display in a museum in Illinois. And it remained there on display until a visiting Mexican dignitary very rightly took offence at it being treated like a war trophy. And so it was taken off display, but uh, they didn't give it back. So, yeah. Anyway. The uh, Mexico lost the war. They were forced to not only cede the remaining claim that they had over Texas, but also they lost other bits and pieces of, of territory to the US. And there's even more to come, uh, believe it or not, but we'll get to that. Santa Ana's return had been a total failure. He had not saved Mexico from the, from the US. And so surely, surely that's the end of him, right? An inept military leader, a terrible president, that must be it for him. Nope. No, of course not. I mean, with the two extra presidencies during this war, we're, we're only up to 10 presidencies. This guy's got one more to go. I mean, there's heaps, there's heaps left for us to cover here. After the Mexican-American War, Santa Ana went off into exile again, uh, this time in Jamaica and then later in Colombia. He actually spent five years in exile, his longest exile yet. But then in 1853, he was invited back to Mexico after the Mexican government was, can you guess, 
overthrown. Yes, indeed. I don't know what it was about the people of 19th century Mexico, but they really seem to have been either extremely forgiving or just very forgetful. They must have had terrible memories because Santa Ana was brought back to Mexico, elected president again, his 11th and now final presidency. And what did he do now that he was back on top? He announced that he wasn't merely a president, but a dictator for life with the title Most Serene Highness. I'm sure this will go well for him. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Hang on one second. That was the shortened title, Most Serene, Most Serene Highness, I should say. Uh, this is his full one. Have a listen to this. Hero of the nation, general of division, grand master of the national and distinguished order of Guadalupe, grand cross of the royal and distinguished Spanish order of Carlos III, and president of the Mexican Republic. Quite a bloody mouthful. Glad he gave us a shorter option. Saves some time at least. But now he's back in charge. So what did he do? Did he turn it all around? Did he secure himself a positive legacy, not only as one of Mexico's most resilient historical figures, but also as one of its best? Did he undo the disasters of his former presidencies? Did he excuse the failures of his military campaigns? Did he justify his place in Mexican history with a stellar performance in his final presidency? Bloody pig's arse he did, mate. What he did instead was get Mexico into huge amounts of debt, line the pockets of the Catholic Church and the army by handing away wealth and property to them, and then made perhaps the biggest blunder of his entire career as he sold almost 77,000 square kilometres of Mexico to the United States. In 1853 and 1854, the US and Mexico negotiated a sale of land south of the Gila River in what is today Arizona and a portion of New Mexico. The US wanted this land to facilitate the construction of a southern transcontinental railway, as the terrain there was much more suited to laying down tracks than anywhere further north. And Santa Ana's government was that cash-strapped that he accepted an offer of 10 million US dollars. That's around a quarter of a billion dollars in today's money. An absolute pittance for 77,000 square kilometres of territory. But it gets worse. Because... Santa Ana needed the money instantly, he signed a terrible deal with US bankers to get immediate access to the money, signing over hundreds of thousands of dollars in lost revenue just so he could get his hands on the money straight away. This transaction is now known as the Gadsden Purchase, named after James Gadsden, the US ambassador to Mexico at the time, and Santa Ana absolutely bottled it. He handed away Mexican territory for a pittance, as I say. Now, some historians argue that he was just being pragmatic, as it was either sell the land to America or have the Americans take it by force, as they were so obsessed with manifest destiny at the time. But however you slice it, Mexico definitely got the short end of the stick with this deal. And I mean, even in today's money, this area of land has more than paid for itself through agriculture and mining alone, never mind the railway being factored in. And so between the Gadsden purchase and his generally terrible efforts as president, Santa Ana was one final time ousted from power. And so he wasn't dictator for life so much as he was dictator for two and a bit years. The revolution of Ayutla actually kicked off in 1854, a year before he was ousted, but it gained more and more steam as Santa Ana fumbled and stumbled away. And ultimately, when the rebels marched into Mexico City in 1855 to seize power, there was widespread support for them. 
Must have been something of a tradition for the people of Mexico City by then, forgetting how terrible Santa Ana was as president, reinstating him, and remembering, oh yeah, this guy sucks, let's overthrow him. I mean, if only there had been some way to foresee this happening, but no, impossible. We, there, there was no, there's no way for us to know. And that, at last, is the end of the story of Santa Ana's political and military career, although it is not the end of his story more broadly. He lived for two more decades and uh, was involved in all sorts of stuff in his forced retirement. He gambled, he started businesses, he uh, he even got really into cockfighting for a while there. Um, And hilariously, he was responsible for one final important achievement before he died. And you are never, ever going to guess what it was. In the 1860s, One of Santa Ana's business ventures was selling chicle, which is a a type of natural latex that's derived from trees. Uh, And he tried to sell it in the US as an alternative to rubber for tyres, for bicycles and buggies. Um, And the problem was it was not very good as a substitute for rubber. Rubber was much better. That's why we still use it today. And so all this chicle didn't sell. And very frustrated with his lack of progress, Santa Ana sought a way to mitigate his losses. And so he worked with American inventor Thomas Adams to find another use for all of this chiclay. Tens of thousands of dollars later, Adams figured out that he could add flavour to the chiclay and market it as chewing gum. Now, this wasn't the first chewing gum that the world had ever seen. I mean, heaps of early civilizations had been chewing gum the gum from trees and, I mean, all sorts of other stuff. Ages and ages and ages. It's been around for potentially thousands of years. But this was the first chewing gum to be successful on a commercial scale. It quickly became popular throughout the US before being spread to the entire world, although today not too many brands still use Chiclay. So for a bloke that helped to shape the history of one of the biggest nations on earth in Mexico... Santa Ana also somehow managed to facilitate the invention of modern chewing gum as well. Quite the career this bloke had. But that was really that for Santa Ana. In 1865, he tried to offer his services as a military leader when the French invaded Mexico again. Uh, Remember that 60,000 pesos that the Mexicans hadn't paid? Yeah, well, the, the French were coming to collect. But uh, quite wisely, the Mexican government turned Santa Ana down this time. And it wasn't until 1874, when a general amnesty was announced in Mexico, that he was able to return once again to his home country. By then, he was pushing 80 years old, almost blind with cataracts, generally in very poor health. But he returned home all the same and spent the final two years of his life in Mexico. Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana died on the 21st of June, 1876, and just like his old leg, he was buried with full military honours. So what can we say about this man? So often in, in weighing up the good and the bad done by figures from history, it's, it's hard to give a thorough and nuanced assessment of someone's life. All too often, we are forced to characterise their legacy as mixed. But that is definitely not the case here because this guy sucked. Man, he was terrible. An awful president, an awful military leader, just really bad at what he did, generally considered an absolute dud in Mexican history. 
Santa Anna was a treacherous, untrustworthy, corrupt, inept, self-serving, ambitious, cruel, and dictatorial buffoon. He was power-hungry, but completely disinterested in actual political leadership. He was vainglorious as a military officer, but hopeless on the battlefield. And this bloke single-handedly lost more Mexican territory to the US than any other leader before or since. But then again, he did give us chewing gum, so yeah. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. And what a ridiculous tale it was. I very much enjoyed getting across it. So thank you to David Herrera and Matt Owen once again for uh, sending it in as a topic suggestion. If you want to do the same thing, jump over to the website, halfhousehistory.net, and use the contact form there. That is the best way to get in touch with me. Uh, thanks to all the people who have been writing in recently. Had a lot of messages of support, which I very much appreciate. It's been so good to hear all the positive feedback. Um, and uh, exciting stuff in the pipeline coming up for, for Half-Assed History. So uh, keep your eyes on your feed because uh, in the coming weeks there should be some, well, I was going to say bonus content, but hopefully all going well, um, there will be a new feature that is going to stick around, uh, a smaller sort of, I guess, spin-off of Half-Assed History that's going to get across some of the, the lighter topics, the, some of the smaller topics that don't f- fill out a full episode. So keep an eye on things because uh, soon there'll be more updates than ever before uh, to your Half-Assed History feed. Uh, but uh, very seriously, I do want to thank the people who have got in touch uh, to, to send me messages of support recently. It's, uh, it's, been, it's been really good to hear from listeners. I always love hearing from people. Head over to Half House History, write me an email. Uh, and of course, I read every single one, even if I can't reply to them all. Um, but if you want to support the show financially, there are a number of ways in which you can do it. You can head to the merch shop. Um, you can buy stuff there. But more importantly, I want to mention the fact that if you want advertising free access to this show, if you want access to the ad free feed, you get it at any tier at patreon.com slash history. So you can sign up today and you can, uh, you'll get a, a, a handcrafted, bespoke, artisanal RSS feed that you can bung in your chosen player and you'll be able to listen to the, to the podcast without any ads. If you want to do that, head over and uh, you'll also gain access to all sorts of other stuff, uncut episodes, behind the scenes uh, notes, um, uh, early access to episodes and merch, Half Us History exclusive Patreon only merch only available through Patreon. Doesn't cost you anything extra on top of whatever you pledge at um, at, uh, at Patreon. So get across that if you're interested in getting access to ad-free episodes. But uh, thank you not only to the patrons, the people supporting me there, in addition to the, all, all the new patrons who have signed up just in the last couple of weeks. It's great to have you along. Thank you as well for, t- for continuing to listen to this dumb podcast. Over the years, I've made reference to the fact that, you know, we've got to get those numbers up, rookie numbers. Well, The numbers aren't so rookie anymore, but still want to see them grow. So tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent, and we'll see you back here next week for more nonsense on Half-Ass History. Until then, of course, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. This one uh, comes to us from Redditor Definately Not a Cheese, who asks, how many people are required for a Mexican to wave back? (laughs) 